from Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy, broadcasting this week from Monroe, Louisiana, with a very special interview that took place in New York City. State of Belief airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you, if you haven't already done it, to subscribe to that today. This program is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, thank you so much. We rely on that and we're grateful for it. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. At the intersection of religion, government, and politics, the Texas GOP is embroiled in controversy over the vice chair of the party in Tarrant County. The problem? She's married to a Muslim man which is enough, apparently, to raise fears in this county, home to the city of Fort Worth and Six Flags over Texas, of a, quote, stealth jihad. In Washington state, Jehovah's Witness kingdom halls continue to burn. An apparent arson has now struck for the fifth time this year, all in the general area of Olympia. Authorities there continue to be stumped by the attacks. And in a somewhat surprising part of his goodbye speech, retiring U.S. Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah called on conservatives to find ways to balance religious liberty and the rights of LGBTQ Americans. A few years ago, An attempt to legislate a ceasefire in the culture wars was attempted in what came to be known as the Utah Compromise. Only time will tell if not retiring lawmakers will find any motivation to step away from extremist impulses. On last week's show, I made the point that as information overload keeps getting worse for many of us, Knowledge seems to be getting less and less accessible. And so we are attempting to remedy this by slowing down and getting more in-depth with some prominent guests during these last weeks of the year. Next week, we'll celebrate the holiday season with country music star Shelley Wright, who has just released a Christmas album called Santa Claus Will Find You. We'll talk family and faith and the future. And we'll wrap up 2018 with a special year-end edition of our series, Whosoever You Love, affirming the full dignity and value of LGBTQ persons within and beyond organized religion. My guest will be two groundbreaking faith leaders— the Reverend Elder Pat Bumgardner of the Metropolitan Community Church, and Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum of Congregation Beit Simchat Torah, it'll be an important look at woman-led LGBTQ-affirming ministry in the 21st century. Sooner or later, 
we'll need to resume our headline-chasing ways. But I am really excited at the prospect of slowing down, getting deeper, and sharing with you the wisdom and perspectives of some truly special individuals after sitting down with them face-to-face in studio conversations. This approach is the only one I am ever able to take with this week's guest. Whenever we get together, I am fascinated by the thoughtful, empathetic, and deeply patriotic approach she takes to the variety of topics covered on her popular television program. With as many demands as there are on her time, I am immensely grateful every time Rachel Maddow sits down for an entire State of Belief program. But she did so once more earlier this month, and I hope you find this conversation as valuable and ultimately inspiring as I did. Rachel, thank you for doing this. I'm super, super happy to see you, Welton. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah, it's um, it's the hap hap happiest time of the year, which of course is a drag. <laughs> it's uh, th- th- there may be celebration going on some places, but but not everywhere. No, there is something about this time of year, and I think you know we're we're talking right now in Rockefeller Center where my offices are, and we've got the Rock- Rockefeller Center Christmas tree, and it is, um, heartening and uh. In some ways, like it's a, it's a, it's a, I don't know, it's like a little grace note in the day to see people coming from all over in order to experience the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. And at the same time, it's also this sort of cynical making thing when you work here and you realize you have to kind of fight through the crowds to get here. I feel like it's a little, um, it's a little spiritual test every year to remember the good things about this and the heartening things about this and the graceful parts about this and not to become a grouch and a grunch, a a Grinch, really, (laughs) (laughs) when it comes to, uh, when it comes to the logistics. Well, when we look at where we are, I'm a little leery about what's under the Christmas tree. Yeah. Yeah. This is, um, I mean, this is, this feels like a very uncertain time in the country. You and I begin asking each other questions in 2006, hmm. before you came to MSNBC, uh, but after you had earned trust as a, a radio host on Air America, when you and I were talking about the religious right and the political right, uh, what was happening in Iraq, what was uh, going on with uh, religious freedom and the threats uh, to it. During that time, did you have any idea that one day we would be dealing with an assault on democracy Mm. and a challenge to civil rights that we now see as a result of the presidency of Donald Trump? That is a hard question. Um, n- no, I, I mean, I'd, in big picture, no. I don't think anybody involved in politics in 2006, right? So 2006, mm-hmm. when we, as you say, when we started talking about these things, think about that moment. George W. Bush was reelected in the context of the Iraq war as opposition to it built. We had Hurricane Katrina and the devastation of thousands of Americans lost. And in 2006, in November, we had the Democratic sweep of of Congress as a rebuke, thus setting up the victory of of Barack Obama in 2008, um, where remember when Barack Obama won in 2008, that was not only 
uh, Democratic swing in the White House, but it was a complete Democratic takeover in the Congress, including a supermajority, essentially, mm-hmm. in the in the Senate. And it just that was that was a time when we felt like that pendulum was swinging to the ends of the range on, on yeah. both sides. And yeah. so knowing that the pendulum could go upside down um, on the right, I think from that vantage point, we wouldn't have seen it. But I, I will say one of the things that I feel like almost accidentally didn't set me up, but kind of equipped me to talk about this time and to understand some of the dynamics of this time is that I have always been interested on very hard right politics. I've always sort of had one eye on what's going on in the sort of the bleeding right fringe of American politics. And so in terms of this, the ascendance of and and the mainstreaming of, you know, white supremacist groups Mm -hmm. and uh, virulently anti-Semitic groups and it, not just, you know, anti-illegal immigration movements, but anti-immigrant movements and these mm-hmm. other things that we've seen mainstreamed into the Republican Party in the Trump era. I sort of have had my eye on them for a while, but uh, I will not claim to have known that they were going to become central to this presidency. But it seems to me we have to know some of what happened because that's the only way we're going to ever avoid it again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there is continuity between previous Republican politics and Trumpism, or do you feel like it is a there's a there's a gap between there's an air gap between them? Did 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 Republican politics evolve into Trumpism, or is he a departure? I don't know. Yeah, and, and that's that. It's a good question, uh, but I'm supposed to be asking you oh, questions. <laughs> if you did, <laughs> I like you. <laughs> I like talking to you, and I want to know what you think. Uh, I think it's different. I think it's totally different. Hmm. There, there is no way of looking at the Republican Party particularly and knowing that Trump could come out of that. Hmm. You know, it's some of the um, Republican criticism of Trump during the 2016 primaries was that actually there was no indication that he was a Republican. Yes, he was running right. as a Republican now and he was espousing some Republican things, but he'd been a registered Democrat. And it seemed like Trump was mostly a Trumpist. Uh, rather than someone who affiliated himself with either party. That said, you know, he's been delivering on Republican policy promises yeah. since he's been in there, which I think is what has dissolved some of the seemingly principled opposition that we saw signs of early yeah. in his ascendance that then instantly dissolved. Yeah. Well, we've had two years to process the 2016 election, and I think we agree it was a cry of rage from a part of the electorate, although opinions differ as to what that rage was actually all about. Mm. But as we look at what that moment has unleashed, can the president or can any president actually solve the crisis in our nation's soul Mm. that we've discovered? How do you define the crisis in the soul? Do you think that is that's related to the kind of rage that you're describing in terms of the election? Or do you think that it's bigger than that? I think our soul is sick. How? <laughs> you're, you're, you're just <laughs> determined you to ask me questions. <laughs> I need a little, sometimes I need a little leadership from Welton. No, I think there's a sickness in not understanding the way in which democracy works and how we have a responsibility for that and that uh, our partisanship is hurting us. And I just think there's a whole baggage load of stuff 
that's anti-democracy and anti-caring about other people. I think that there is a lack of appreciation for, lack of respect for small-D democracy mm-hmm. um, that is getting to be not just more widespread on the right, but is getting to be pretty overt. One of the things that we're following in the news in the wake of the midterm elections is this phenomenon that we first saw in North Carolina a couple years ago, where Democrats did well and Republicans still had power in the legislature after the elections. And they responded to, for example, an incoming Democratic governor by cutting the power of the governor. And it was seen as such an outrageous move, an indefensible move um, by North Carolina Republicans a couple of years ago. They actually didn't much try to defend it. They just did it and tried to not talk about it. Mm-hmm. But not only did they get away with it in North Carolina, it has now become the expected template, apparently, for Republicans losing elections everywhere. And I was talking with my staff about this just this week, trying to talk about how to cover that. What's the best way to contextualize and explain this in a way that people understand the gravity of it and how different this is from previous approaches to partisan combat in politics? And we came to the realization that Something has changed on the right. Something has changed in the Republican Party. So whereas even just a couple of years ago, North Carolina Republicans might have tried that but stayed away from the microphone and not wanted to talk about it. Right now, with it happening in Wisconsin and Michigan and a few other states, if you go to them and you you cover this story by saying, hey, I think the context of what you're doing here is that you are anti democracy, that you are against the results of democracy and you're trying to undermine them by using your majoritarian power to take away the results of what people voted for, they're not going to shy away from the microphone about that now because they're no longer ashamed of that. They're quite proud of that. And when you can no longer criticize somebody in supposedly mainstream American politics by making them feel ashamed or embarrassed about the fact that they're Mm -hmm. anti-democratic, anti-small-d democratic then that means something has has changed in terms of sort of the range of of of, yeah. of available shaming. Right. That is a phenomenon that I think we, we haven't quite come around to in presidential politics and with what the changes in the Republican Party, which is a lot of the things that we not only want to happen in American politics, but expect to happen are enforced by shame and embarrassment. Mm-hmm. So there isn't a rule that says you have to disclose your tax returns. There's an expectation, and you should be embarrassed and ashamed if you haven't done it, given that everybody else has. What are you hiding? But if you're not embarrassed or ashamed, turns out there's no rule to fall back on in order to compel that. Mm-hmm. And that's happening in all sorts of parts of conservative politics now, that the um, the expectations that were, that were enforced by... Uh, feeling that were enforced by expectations of having to defend yourself and not wanting to be seen as an extremist. That doesn't work anymore. And so I think that means that as Democrats do get some power back, as the pendulum swims back the other way, Democrats are going to have to make some of these things compelable rather than expectations. Like Mm -hmm. the tax returns thing, they're going to have to figure out a way to make that something you have to do, not something you ought to do. And I think that that principle is going to become um, a driving dynamic in terms of democratic governance over the next few years. We're just getting started with Rachel Maddow, host of the eponymous MSNBC program, as well as the comprehensive podcast series, Bagman. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. Now comes the question that I really wanted to ask what you think. Uh, What's next? 
As you know, I have been really focused on the foreign influence scandal, the Russia scandal. And, you know, a lot of people criticize me for spending too much time on that and for having focused on that at a time when other people weren't. But I sort of feel like (laughs) it's paying off. (laughs) It, It did turn out to be the existential scandal of this presidency, at least thus far. And just looking at that, I feel very uncertain both as to where the investigation is going to go. We, I think, are going to see a renewal in terms of congressional accountability with Adam Schiff at the Intelligence Committee and Gerald Nadler at the Judiciary Committee and with the the aggression that we're going to see, I think, from the Oversight Committee and the House Finance Committee and all this stuff. Congress is going to matter, again, Mm -hmm. in terms of exposing that stuff. And I think that will be healthy for the country, not just because... You know, those Democrats will figure out bad stuff about Trump, but because I think the Congress needs to actually function as part of the accountability process in the country in order for our government to be balanced. So I don't know what's going to happen there. That's going to be a brand new dynamic. I also don't know what Robert Mueller is going to do and nobody else does. And anybody who yeah. tells you that they know it is lying. Yeah. But the, the thing that I feel the most uncertainty about is how the president and his cohort in the administration and his sort of enablers in Republican elected office, how they will respond and what they will see as their arsenal of available tactics when the investigation inevitably gets even closer to the president and his family and his inner circle. I don't know what they'll do in response. Obviously, the president has been willing to threaten the end of the world. What's the psychological dynamic of bullies when they're actually called on their bad behavior in a way that by somebody who is equally powerful? It's hard to know. It could be disastrous. He could crumble. Um, He could try to, you know, I mean, in Watergate, there were worries within the Nixon administration that he was going to call out the 101st Airborne. Right. What will Trump do if if and when he's caught for the kinds of things that Mueller is investigating? That's a that's going to be something for which we need to be prepared as a country. and And I don't know what the available range is there in terms of what he's capable of. Rachel, I think you see some things nobody else sees. You have a perceptive ability that all of us can benefit from. And you see these things that not other people are not even talking about. Hmm. What do you see that bothers you that you have a sense no one else is seeing? Oh, well, for, first, you're very kind to put it that way. I, I disagree with the premise a little bit because I don't I don't think that I, I'm not I'm not like a great investigative reporter. I'm not necessarily every once in a while I dig up something that somebody legitimately doesn't know that nobody legitimately has uh, besides me. But mostly I read um, and I am, um, you know, following in the footsteps of uh, reporters at, at home and around the world that are that are turning stuff up. And I just try to put stuff in context. So I don't I don't think I see too much stuff that nobody else has seen. But. Uh, in terms of focus, in terms of stuff that might be important that maybe doesn't seem important to other people, um, this might sound a little esoteric, but one of the things that I spend a lot of my non-work time reading about and trying to get smarter about is the connection between um, Trump-type leaders in other countries Mm. um, and the uh, interactions between right-wing populist um, movements, and I mean, people call them sort of proto-fascist movements that we're seeing um, around the world. Um, The new leader of Brazil, who was just elected, for example, and Viktor Orban in Hungary, and Vladimir Putin in Russia, and um, the types of leader, you know, and and Erdogan in Turkey. And I mean, there's, they're, they're all, they're all, 
specific to their own countries, and they're all they all arrive from different di- domestic dynamics. But there are links, and there are in some cases um, literal financial and personnel links between these different types of movements that are arising elsewhere. And for the first time, we've got an American president who is more personally and wants to be more politically allied with dictatorial leaders in other countries that he he likes he likes people who are like him mm-hmm. and so you see him outre- his outreach to Duterte in 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 the Philippines and you see what's happening with the Saudi crown prince for example and you see the president's alliance with Vladimir Putin and those are the kinds of people that he gravitates to even his um, his warmth toward the dictator in North Korea. I mean, it's strange for an American president, but I also think it's important. And the reason I think it's important for us as citizens of the world, but also as Americans, is because if those types of leaders are, if that type of leadership is in ascendance in multiple parts of the world all at the same time, and there are links among them and there is affinity among them, one of the things that's going to happen when one or more of those leaders decides to cross over not just crossover from not just being authoritarian, but into being truly despotic or even genocidal, Mm -hmm. is that the other leaders who that leader sees as in his cohort, his other allied, like-minded guys Mm -hmm. around the world, will validate what he does. Mm. And it will be seen as something that is, you know, if not just excused, perhaps celebrated. And that will create a new floor in terms of what's accepted in in modern um, in, in modern governance and in in tyranny and violence. And so I'm I'm worried. I mean, we're never we're never going to have another Hitler in this country, in, in this world. I'm not talking about that. But whatever is the floor in terms of what a leader like Duterte or Orban or Putin or any of these guys is capable of, I am worried will be supported both by the United States president and by all these other guys around the country, around the world that are like that. And that's going to be a, a moral crisis for the world. And we're going to need to find leadership outside that cohort that can organize the world against it. And I don't know who the minority is that's going to be that we're going to have to stand up to do that for. I don't know what national border is going to be dissolved that we're going to need to rise up as a as an international community to stand up for. But there's going to have to be a countervailing force. And right now, those guys are in the ascendance. And I think that's important. I actually didn't mean for you to scare us to death. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Uh, But, no, I I, I mean, it's exactly what uh, I wanted to hear from you because I, I do think you're seeing that in a way that a lot of other people just aren't thinking about. You know, and it's it is the other side of the the Russia story domestically, right? So we've got this crisis in terms of the potential of our government and the evidence that high ranks of our government in this administration were compromised by by Russia as Russia was trying to insert President Trump um, uh, in the 2016 election. But simultaneously, I don't I don't think it's a disconnected matter that Russia does appear to be trying to annex more of a neighboring country right now. I mean, they already took a big portion of Ukraine. They are blockading Ukrainian ports right now, and they've seized Ukrainian ships, and they are trying to take more of that country. As Russia expands its borders, that is an international rogue state um, situation that the United States would usually take a leadership role on. And in this case, not only do we have to worry about the personal compromise of our president stopping him from doing that, but also just the idea that in this moment, 
with Trumpist politics here and abroad, that sort of thing is expected or even encouraged by these allied leaders. And that makes like that makes that situation in Ukraine. It seems like an international pages, you know, you know, page 14, bottom column kind of story. But that's really important in terms of what's going to happen next in the world and what our generation is going to have to ultimately answer for in terms of what changed in civilization while we were on this earth. I'll continue this conversation with Rachel Maddow, author of the book Drift, The Unmooring of American Military Power, after this break. Now look, if you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all of that at stateofbelief.com. I'm Welton Gaddy. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, religion and radio done differently. We're spending the entire hour with MSNBC host, author, and my dear friend, Rachel Maddow. Well, let's talk about another change that may be, and I hope will be, a positive one. And I have to ask you about it. I I can't ask people like me, older white men, we already know what we think about this. But what's going to happen with all of the women who have run for office, who are now in the offices uh, that we want them to be in, Mm. does that give us some hope and some dreaming about positive change? That is a great question. And I, I feel like that's one of the most exciting unknowns about this moment in American politics. Um, you know, the, the Republican Party did not get more female in Congress um, over this last election, but the Democratic Party really did. And so, I mean, it's an interesting dynamic in terms of partisan combat to see the Democratic Party becoming more representative of American demographics and the Republican Party becoming sort of demographically, at least kind of more of a rump party, like they're really boiling down to their to their to their base. Um, so that that's interesting in terms of that that sort of short term dynamic. But then the long term dynamic is something that we've all experienced in our lives, whether or not we're directly involved in politics. And that is this sort of, I don't know, um, this sort of sense that we all have. I do think it's something we've all lived through, that women's leadership is different than men's leadership, mm-hmm. that there is a gendered dynamic. And it, it can be overstated and it can be too reductive, but there is a different dynamic in women's leadership that is absent from men's leadership, which which can be... It isn't always, but can be more collaborative. Um, uh, one of the ways that I've heard some of the newly elected women in Congress describe it is that women talk before they fight. One of the things that we have seen, even with the small number of women in the U.S. Senate in the past, is that on sort of technocratic issues, domestic policy issues that, you know, you need to find a hard solution and there isn't an, there isn't an easy partisan bumper sticker um, to, to work it out, that, that the women's the bipartisan women's caucus in the Senate has actually been a source of some uh, good problem solving discussions there. Mm. And so, again, I don't mean to oversimplify the gender dynamics and leadership, but I do think there is some hope that increasing the number of women in power not only opens the world in terms of possibilities for girls and young women in terms of how they think about life, but it also may change politics now 
um, by making politics a little more constructive and less instinctually um, bloody. Mm-hmm. But uh, but we'll see. You know, I mean, there's there's I got, you know, I'm I'm 45 years old. There's been a lot of terrible women politicians in my lifetime. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> saying that just because you're a female politician, you're good at what you do. Um but uh, but increasing the number of women does in any organization does tend ch- to change the 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 behavior of that organization. So I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens in the Democratic caucus in the House. Mm. Let's turn to media for a moment. Uh, given the attacks on the media, can we ever recover for journalists the respect for media that caused a person like? my dear friend Walter Cronkite to be called the most trusted man in America? Hmm. I think a lot about this. I don't think there's an easy answer, Um, but I think about this all the time. I think that it's worth appreciating that for all the attacks on the media, for all the ways that um, attacks on journalists that we saw in other countries and used to condemn in other countries um, have now become mainstreamed into Republican politics because of this presidency. For all of that, um, and for all the business challenges that are uh, making it hard to make a living in journalism right now, the other thing that's going on in journalism right now is that this is a golden age of American journalism. Yeah. I mean, we are, especially in the context of this ex- existential scandal that sort of defines this presidency that we've been talking about, the Russia scandal, the possibility of foreign compromise of the U.S. government at the highest levels, the American open source journalism that has been done around that story, I would put up against any era in American journalism in terms of its quality and its impact. And so in terms of you know, respect for the American media, respect for American journalists, respect for the First Amendment. Yeah, you have to factor in the attacks on journalists and the attacks on on the media. But I also think that the the media sort of makes its own bed here. I mean, Mm -hmm. how can you look at the work of, you know, a a Shane Harris or a Mark Hosenball or a Mike Isakoff or a Carol Lenig or a Rukmini Kalamaki? How How can you not look at the work of journalists like that and have immense respect for American journalism, not only for its craft, but for its impact. And um, I think as long as American journalism keeps being this good and rising to the occasion the way they have in this moment, that's the best defense, is to be better than your opponents. Um, and yeah, there, there, does need to be, there does need to be defense, but offense is always better. I, I happen to think Rachel Maddow's on that List you, you are you are a nice man who sometimes lies. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that, that, you haven't ever heard me do that. Yeah, that's that's, 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 uh, um, I, I know I'm skipping around a little, but th- there are issues that I'm thinking about that I just I want to hear uh, what you're thinking about them. Um, I am hurting that so many Americans don't understand LGBTQ people, and with encouragement from the person in the White House Mm -hmm. um, is not moving toward acceptance, but is hardening in rejection. And there, you know, there are there are a lot of young people in our country at this point that have known nothing but progress. Yeah, that's a great point. And um, now then they're, they're seeing a turn on that. Uh, as as slow as it's been, the progress is a heck of a lot better than what we're seeing right now. 
I, I'm just curious, what would you say to these kids, uh, or or can you say something to hmm. them? It's a that's a very it's a good question. Um, I guess if I'm speaking total, not trying to be inspirational at all, just speaking bluntly in terms of how I really think, what I really think. I, the only advice I would give is to know your history. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason that there has recently been an era of progress on LGBTQ issues is because of the generations that built the movement that fought for it. And learning that history, learning that it didn't just happen, (laughs) Uh, even if you were just born to it, that doesn't mean that it just happened, that people had to create from worse than nothing the movement that achieved those aims, I think is the best antidote toward taking those, those, both toward taking those gains for granted, but also toward um, um, being ill-equipped to fight the backlash. Mm -hmm. We are in, we're in a backlash moment right now. Mm -hmm. Um, That is very, that is dangerous because... Part of the material consequence of the progress that was made on queer issues over the last couple of decades is that lots of people came out. And when you come out, that's the only way to live and survive as a queer person, speaking from experience. Mm -hmm. That said, you have also identified yourself to people who may want to kill you for being out. Mm -hmm. And so now we've got lots of out people and we've got a very emboldened backlash of people who are in in some cases advocating violence um, against those of us who have come out. And so that's an identified community that was able to come out through political activism and a newly energized right-wing backlash to it that poses a danger. And the way I think the community ends up best equipped to fight these the, the current battles and those beyond us is to know how we got here, to learn the organizing lessons of our, of our forefathers and foremothers, et cetera, um, and to be prepared to stand up for ourselves again um, and in new ways. One of the things that I think is... Um, a challenge and is going to be an interesting dynamic as this goes forward is that in American gay rights history, one of the things that um, defined the way we defended our, we formed our communities, organized and defended ourselves is that people moved to the cities and that if you were LGBTQ and you lived in the middle of the country or you lived in a rural area, or you lived far away from cities that had identified queer communities, you were in a different situation, maybe in more danger. Also, you had a different cultural experience. Now, with so much of our culture being defined not by in-person interaction, but by online interaction, that defines that sort of geographical cure in a different way. Yeah. People find each other online. They don't find each other because they've moved to San Francisco and they see each other on the street or in the bars. Um, and that that creates a different dynamic that I think we will, my, in my generation, as a 45-year-old, that I will be learning from the younger queer generation Um, as they create their own um, community defense. Mm -hmm. Several of the um, things we've talked about already uh, have involved the authoritarian movement, uh, particularly in places that claim to be uh, uh, democratic-oriented. There's actually been bloodshed uh, with people who have done journalism the right way, Mm -hmm. and uh, we are looking at that right now. I I don't want to be hyperbolic, uh, but but I do want to know something. (laughs) I I don't go one day, I don't think, without I get two or three emails saying that 
MSNBC is in trouble and Rachel Maddow is about to be taken off the air. Um, Now, if that's true, I'm not doing what I want to be doing, but (laughs) if if that's going to be true, is the stability of your show in danger? No. And, you know, it's I'm glad you brought that up because I don't see those things all that often. But whenever I do see those things and I find out that they're happening, I have NBC contact the people who are sending out those emails to tell them to stop doing it. Because if there is a problem with the government coming after me or coming Mm -hmm. after this network or coming after um, our parent network or something for ideological reasons, if there if there is something like that, you will hear about it from us. And I think what's happening with those dynamics is that people are exploiting the fear of the possibility of something like that, basically to raise money for themselves or to get attention or get get um, build build out their email lists. And no, there there isn't that kind of threat. And that's I mean, that's not to say that I think the Trump administration is is incapable of that kind of threat, sure. but we're experiencing nothing like that. And um, I I I. I take that in the spirit with which it is intended that people are willing to sort of rally to the defense of of me and to this right. network and what we're doing. But um, but no, we're fine. I'm Welton Gaddy. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. My guest is MSNBC host Rachel Maddow. As long as we have known each other, we have shared a, a, a passionate interest in religious freedom. Yeah. Um, as we talk today, that very phrase seems to be everywhere, but it doesn't have the same definition that we find in the Constitution. Um, what are we going to do? I mean, we now have an orientation toward religious freedom um, that is the opposite of religious freedom. Hmm. And and so you can't just say, I believe in religious freedom because you may be uh, agreeing with something that you want to oppose rather than uh, affirm. So you, you think that the people who actually oppose religious freedom have adopted that term to explain what they're, to, to adopted that term to essentially invert its meaning? Uh, to, I, is that what you mean? I, I absolutely mean it, and and I will defend saying that's happened. Mm-hmm. So it it has. I mean, it was a brilliant thing to do for them. But how do we get back to the meaning of religious freedom, which is so critical in our nation? Well, I mean, it is always smart in politics. It's it's unnerving and it is um, dishonest, but it is tactically smart in politics to adopt the language of your opponent and make it your own. That's de- just thus denying them a vocabulary to talk about their own side of things. Mm-hmm. And that's what they've done with religious freedom. I mean, when you get, you know, Mike Pence as governor of Indiana passing a religious freedom bill that allows people to discriminate against people of other religions. Yeah. <laughs> that is um, that's that's. You know, again, tactically smart. Um, and so how do you respond to that tactically? Well, part of it is that I think you need to keep um, you need to stay on offense in terms of the language. So there was a, there's a current controversy right now in Texas where there's um, a man who is a trauma surgeon, who is a Muslim, who has been elected to a leadership role in Texas Republican Party politics. And there's a movement within part of Texas 
Republican politics, that he should be removed from his leadership role, specifically on the basis of the fact that he's a Muslim. And the people who are arguing against him are calling that a religious religious freedom yes. argument. Right. Um, he has responded, and, and good-hearted, I think right-minded people within Texas Republican politics have responded by saying, no, there cannot, under the Constitution, and there cannot, within our set of values as a country, be a religious test for office. And you have established a religious test. You are testing whether or not he's a Christian as the grounds for whether or not he can hold this job. That is excluded by the Constitution, and there's a reason we, there's a reason we stand by that. And so... Do you call it a religious test instead of calling it religious freedom? Okay, well, they'll then they'll then adopt religious test and start using that as well in some perverse way. But you have to sort of stay tactically ahead of it, I think, as part of it. I also think that, you know, as in gay community politics over the last several decades, part of it is that people need to come out. People need to uh, people need to come out as um, um, as supporters of what you and I understand as traditional constitutional religious freedom, even when it is unpopular within their party. I thought it was an important moment, for example, in Republican politics several years ago when New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who I disagree with on a million different things, <laughs> faced a similar dynamic in New Jersey politics where there was a, um, a, a Muslim judge who was appointed who started getting attacked by other Republicans. How can you be a Muslim and a judge? And Chris Christie came out and absolutely cut that off at the knees and said no. Um, I won't stand for this. And while he's in a position of leadership as the state's governor, we need we need leadership on the right on that issue. We need allies on the right on that issue. It doesn't help for me to squawk about it on TV. We need Republicans who are willing to stand up and say this isn't the direction our party's going. They're scarce. Yeah. And they're not brave anymore. No. Um, They were braver a couple of years ago before we got two years into the Trump administration. Rachel, you love what you do. (laughs) Right? Uh, yes, I do several different things. If you're talking about fishing and talking oh, no, to you. No, I know about fishing. I making know. cocktails on Saturday night with Susan, yes, I do love what I do. <laughs> what happens when you go on the air? Yeah. Uh, in, terms of, in terms of loving what I do, in terms yeah. of this job? You know, I do love what I do. I feel... Mostly because I feel honored to be able to do it. I mean, I have the best job in America. My job is to read all day and report all day and work with a great team of staff all day to figure out what's going on in the world and then say what I think is going on. I mean, it's we're all very engaged in politics right now, right? It's, a, it's sort of a sign of a well-governed country when you don't have to think about your government. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a sign of creeping authoritarianism when you have to constantly think about the leader. Uh, and so I, we're all thinking about the government and our current leader all the time because it's a very worrying time. My job is to do nothing else other than think about that and explain what's important about it. So I love what I do because I value it. Um, but it, it's hard, you know. Yes, it's hard. I know it's hard. I want to ask you a question that I always ask you. Hmm. Uh, what is the most important word, message, statement you have to encourage real, authentic American patriots today? Hmm. Oh, well, you put a lot on me. Um This is going to sound a little hippy-dippy. Forgive me okay. in advance. Um, I would say balance. And this is a little bit about that dynamic I was just talking about in terms of what's in our forebrain right now. Mm -hmm. In a well-run 
community, in a well-run state, in a well-run country, you don't have to think about your government that much. You're a, you're a citizen, you're a patriot, and you want to play, your, you want to do your part. But you go about your business, and the freedom of this that this country affords you, and the freedom of our constitutional inheritance should allow you to think about government when you when you when it's your turn, you know, when yeah. it, when 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 you're called upon to do it. But otherwise, to go about your business, and we are we do not have that luxury right now. We have to think about government and politics and the news constantly because stuff is scary right now and because the realm of what is possible feels like it all of a sudden encompasses all of these previously unthinkable things. And so citizenship right now causes us, calls upon us to be more engaged, more aware, and sort of more on our toes. Similarly, the president himself, part of his power, part of his skill, part of how he got where he is, is that he has a way of inserting himself into every thought into every conversation. And when thing, people aren't talking about him, he is perfectly happy to make you talk about him in a negative way as long as it's about him. And that, over time, can be corrosive to our sense of self and toward our sense of where the horizon is and our values. And balance is important. Um, in this environment, to be a good citizen, I think you need to have time outside. You need to have time with your faith, You need to have time with your family and with your friends. You need to have some sort of cultural or or, or artistic involvement in your life. If you're not listening to music, start listening to music. If you're not reading poetry or reading fiction, start reading some fiction. Not as a way to check out, but to make sure that you know who you are and to stay engaged with your own values and your own, the, 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 the arc of your own life so that it's not overwhelmed by this political moment, because this political moment requires you to be your best self. And being your best self means taking care of yourself and knowing who you are. And so we don't do the cocktail moment that we used to do on my show anymore on Friday. I don't think this is a good time to encourage anybody to drink. Um, someday we'll go back. <laughs> someday we'll go back to that. Um, but this is a time when for myself, I have taken time. I had health issues this year. I have a bad back. I've taken time to take care of my back. I have uh, taken more time off than my job otherwise would have wanted me to take because I want to have stuff going on in my private life that I can call upon in terms of strength at this time. And that is, um, so I don't know. I know it sounds a little hippy-dippy, but that's my advice. Rachel, yours is a voice that evokes gratitude from people all over this nation. I, I hope you know how important you are for people who live in places um who have told me over and over again as I've traveled that yours is the only voice of hope they really have. Mm. Uh, This is not flattery. It's not an evaluation of your professional acumen. Uh, We live in a time when it is possible to reach isolated, deeply wounded people in profound ways Mm. by bringing heart and authenticity and honesty and courage to our work. And I continue to give thanks. I will always continue to write you notes of encouragement because you do the best of what needs to be done in reaching those people as well as a lot of other people. It means the world to me, Walton. Thank you so much for saying that, my friend. Thank you for spending this time with me. Of course. Anytime. Well, 
That's all the time we have for this week's show. Your generous support of this program helps keep us on the air week after week. If you've made a donation to State of Belief Radio this week, let me say thank you on behalf of every one of our listeners. Now, if you think there's value in what you've heard here, please make your contribution today. Please keep in mind as you plan your tax-deductible donations that uh, you can make a donation to State of Belief that way at the end of the year. Find more information at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. There's a conversation going on there, and you can be a part of it. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then... You all take care of each other. I'm Welton Gaddy. That's State of Belief.